Good morning, church. You can go ahead and make your way to your seats. And uh, we will get started with the preaching of the gospel this morning. Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to open God's word together with you again. Um, today we're going to be continuing, as John had mentioned in the announcements, our August sermon series on evangelism. And so this morning, as we look at scripture together, just like we've done the rest of this month, we're going to look at the scripture through the lens of evangelism. So how does this scripture equip us and encourage us to preach the good news of Christ to others in our everyday lives? And I hope this month so far that you have been greatly encouraged, that you've been equipped, that you've seen fruit in your own life, even from practicing what has been preached here on Sunday mornings, as you have gone and shared the gospel with those in your circles of life. And I hope this morning, and I pray this morning, that we will be further equipped and encouraged toward evangelism in our lives as we look at the book of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me, Acts chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Do you ever feel like evangelism is really, really hard? We live in a world that seems to make sharing the gospel with people an almost impossible task. It seems like every week we hear stories of more national tragedies, of violence in public places, Christians being pushed out of a culture that is rapidly becoming hostile to the good news of Jesus. We hear of policies being supported that threaten our religious freedoms as our culture has abandoned any sense of absolute truth. And sometimes the church as a whole doesn't seem much better either. Our social media pages are filled with people's reactions to a popular church leader abandoning the faith. We go to the bookstore and we see the so-called Christian section bombarded with heresy, with heresy prosperity, Self-help theology. We drive down the road. We see a church building proudly flying a rainbow flag. Then we look at our own lives and our own hearts. Our own brokenness strikes home every single day. We mourn the loss of loved ones. We struggle in our relationships. Our own sin seeks to destroy us daily. Our hearts ache at the state of our world today. And in the midst of that, evangelism can at times feel absolutely impossible. Have you ever taken a good, hard look at the evil and the hardship in our world and figuratively, if not literally, thrown your hands up, staring into heaven, saying, God, when will you end all of this? When will you do something about it? Well, at the end of our passage this morning, we find Jesus' disciples in a similar situation. Their circumstances are quite different, but their reaction is the same as ours. They've just watched as Jesus ascended into heaven, and now they're staring up, probably thinking to themselves, well, what in the world do we do now? And all of a sudden, they're met by some angels who ask them rhetorically why they're just standing there, and they assure them that Jesus is coming back. Our passage for this morning covers not only what they were to do in the meantime, but how the disciples were equipped to do it. And I believe the Holy Spirit would encourage us this morning as well, that Jesus is surely coming back to finally end all of the evil and the heartache in the world. And I believe that he would remind us through his word that our task in the meantime is the same as the disciples and that we are equipped for the same task just as the disciples were. This task is for our joy and for our assurance in Christ, even as we face the daily hardships in our lives. So let's read our passage together, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, uh, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and on a cloud took, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The title of the message this morning is The Holy Spirit, Evangelism's Empowerer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your word. We are so grateful that you provide us hope in the midst of our daily struggles. And God, part of the hope that you provide us comes through us preaching the good news that can save sinners from the wrath to come. And Lord, I thank you so much for this passage of scripture that you have put here in the book of Acts. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you have inspired this, that you have given this word to us to equip us, to encourage us, to empower us to go forth in evangelism. Lord Jesus, I pray that as you continue to work through us, that you would work in us, encouraging us by this word to go forth and reap much fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, the section of scripture that we're looking at together this morning is both the prologue and the opening scene to the book of Acts. And if you're, if you're familiar with Acts, you know how it traces the task of Jesus' followers as they await his return. They preach the gospel, they do evangelism as God builds his church through them. And so the book of Acts traces how the gospel went from a grassroots movement in Judaism to a multi-ethnic force across the known world, primarily through evangelism. And here at the very beginning, Luke finds it important to tell us how the disciples were equipped for this task and why their, why their evangelism was so successful. In other words, this passage gives us the antidote for the temptation to just stare into heaven waiting for Jesus to return. The book of Acts is the second of Luke's two-volume story about the works of Jesus. Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. And so Acts picks up right where Luke left off with the events following the resurrection of Jesus. But it begins with the foundational prologue in verses 1 through 5 before launching into the story's opening scene in verses 6 through 11. If you're familiar with the Star Wars movies, you know how at the beginning of each movie, the essential background information scrolls across the screen to the famous music, and it's immediately followed by the first scene. That's what's going on here with our text this morning. Verses 1 through 5 is like the scrolling text. It's the, bra- it's the background information. It's the summary of what came before. And verses 6 through 11 is the first scene as the text fades away and the camera focuses on the foundational elements to the story. The prologue helps to set our perspective for evangelism, and the first scene gives us key principles for evangelism. So let's look together at the prologue, verses 1 through 5, and as we do so, may we strengthen our perspective for evangelism. Well, Luke begins this book by summarizing his gospel account, and he does so from the perspective that God is primarily responsible for what happens in both Luke and Acts. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the main actor in both narratives. This is evident in the very first verse of this passage here. Luke tells his audience that in the first book, meaning the gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's essentially saying that the first book, the gospel of Luke, is not the end of Jesus's works. Think of yourself for a moment as Theopolis, the man to whom Luke addresses both of his books. You've already read the gospel of Luke, and you've learned about this man, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, 
God himself in human form. You were amazed as you heard how Jesus traveled throughout the land of Israel, healing people, performing miracles, befriending the outcasts, the poor, the sinners. Then you were challenged as you read how Jesus taught things like, love your enemies. And if anyone would come after me, he must take, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then you were cut to the heart upon reading that this Jesus, who never committed any sin, was crucified, dying the most brutal death imaginable. And when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, meaning that through his death, he opened up direct access to God the Father. And then you rejoiced as you read how this Jesus rose from the dead and began to appear to his followers before being taken up into heaven. Then you start reading the book of Acts, the second book from Luke, and you have to reread the first line again. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Hold on a minute. You mean to tell me that the gospel of Luke isn't the end of the story for Jesus? He's got more to do and teach even after he ascended into heaven? Luke would assure us that's exactly what I'm telling you. You see, what I'm about to tell you about the expansion of the gospel through the disciples' evangelism is also the works of Jesus himself. And then as the prologue continues, Luke continues to build on this gospel, this God-centered foundation for the expansion of the church. Verse 3, he finds it important to mention that Jesus presented himself alive. He is alive. Not only did he suffer for sin, but he rose from the dead. And so he is the one who works through his people to do the work of evangelism. It is the risen Lord who continues to work after rising from the dead. And then notice the end of the prologue in verses 4 and 5. The very last thing that Luke tells his audience before opening up with this grand story of the gospel going forth is a reminder of what Jesus commanded his chosen disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Jesus knew the work that was about to take place. He knew the story the apostles had to tell. He knew the persecutions that lie in front of them. He knew the joy they would feel as they would watch sinners be transformed by the power of this good news. And he knew that all of it would be impossible without the Holy Spirit empowering their evangelistic efforts. And so he called them first to wait. I don't know how many of you are kite flying enthusiasts, but I'm sure you've tried to fly a kite at some point in your life. And if you've ever tried to fly a kite, you learn very quickly that flying a kite is impossible without the right weather conditions. I remember times when I was a, when I was a child that I wanted to go outside and fly a kite only to have my parents tell me, sorry, not going to work today. Not windy enough. Perhaps you've experienced this too. Well, I'm no expert at flying kites, but I do know that without enough wind in the air, you can't fly a kite. You can spend lots of money on the perfect kite. You can train for hours perfecting your craft. You can read books and watch YouTube videos about the proper technique. But at the end of the day, all of your effort means nothing if there's no wind in the air. Well, the same is true for evangelism. We can strategize, train, role play, read books, watch videos, get nice tracks. But without the Holy Spirit driving us along, our evangelism will be truly unable to accomplish anything. Just as flying a kite is impossible with the wind, evangel- without the wind, evangelism is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And so we see throughout this prologue the clear perspective that biblical evangelism is explicitly God-centered and Spirit-empowered. God is the one who does the real work in evangelism. He is the ignition, the engine, and the driver. Look at verse 1. The life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus was only the beginning of his works. Verse 4. The Father made a promise the apostles were to wait for. And verse 5. The apostles looked forward to the Holy Spirit to come and baptize them. To immerse him, to immerse them in his power as they went about this good work of furthering the gospel. 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the very epicenter of biblical evangelism. Well, if you're like me, it's easy to lose this perspective. It's easy for us to, rather than praying for the Holy Spirit's empowering before going forth in evangelism, quickly get caught in the mindset that we can strategize, we can plan, we can train, then go and do evangelism. And later, if we think about it or get around to it, then pray for the Holy Spirit to bless our efforts. Perhaps part of the reason we find it so hard to preach the gospel to others in our everyday lives is because we often don't start our days with a God-centered perspective, praying earnestly for His Holy Spirit to empower us to have gospel conversations throughout the day. Evangelism is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And so when we feel that evangelism is impossible in our own lives, before trying to figure things out on our own, we need to seek the Holy Spirit and to pray earnestly for His empowering daily. So as we talk about equipping for evangelism, we know that all of our efforts will be futile if we don't start with this understanding that the Holy Spirit empowers our evangelism. We can hear hundreds of sermons on evangelism. We can attend classes on how to evangelize. We can arm ourselves with the best tracks around. We can memorize scriptures. But at the end of the day, if we do not start each day with rooting ourselves in the Holy Spirit's power through earnest and honest seeking of Him, we will eventually burn out and lose our joy in evangelism. See, the Holy Spirit's role is not only to apply the gospel to the hearts of those we're preaching it to. His role is also to apply the gospel to our own hearts in such a way that we can't help but share this good news with others. That's Luke's primary concern here in the prologue. Before going into the awesome story that is the book of Acts, he must remind us that the Father promised to send his Holy Spirit. Everything else that is to come is an outworking of that promise. And that promise gives us proper perspective for evangelism. Let us now turn to the opening scene of this book in verses 6 through 11, where we will find key principles for evangelism. Between verses 5 and 6, the curtain is rolled back and the Acts narrative begins. The apostles are gathered together on a mountain where Jesus told them to go, and there the risen Christ is with them. And the first words we hear come in a form of the question of a question from the disciples to Jesus. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples were part of the Jewish people that were subject to the Roman Empire under Roman law and governance, which which could at times be oppressive. And they grew up hearing the stories of their forefathers. They heard about how Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, led their ancestors out of bondage in Egypt. And how when the people disobeyed, they were sent to exile, but their God eventually restored them to the promised land. God gave them prophets, priests, and kings, promising that one would eventually rise up from Israel, from the line of King David, to reign forever on the throne, the Messiah, the Chosen One. And though they waited for many long and agonizing years, they knew that this Messiah had finally come. The Messiah Jesus called them to follow him as he performed miracles and preached about the kingdom of God. But they didn't quite understand what he meant by the kingdom of God. They expected a Messiah who would restore Israel to its earthly power and glory. That's why some of them asked for seats of power in the kingdom and questioned why Jesus, God's anointed one, would interact with sinners and outcasts. The Messiah's coming was to finally restore Israel's power. So when their king was being sought after for arrest, Peter drew his sword and cut off a soldier's ear. Surely this king couldn't face trial, or worse yet, death. That would mean the end of everything. So they thought. But Jesus had a different message. He preached that his kingdom was not of this world. His kingdom was spiritual and the doors to the kingdom would be opened through his death. 
What the disciples thought was the end of the Messiah was actually the beginning of their being welcomed into the kingdom. Now, they sort of started to understand this just a few days after Jesus' death when he appeared to them alive. He had risen from the dead. And though he explained everything to them, there was still a part of them that just didn't quite get it. So when they came together, as verse 6 tells us, they must have thought, surely now is the time. He was dead. We thought that was the end. But now he's alive. We thought it was the end of everything, but clearly, but clearly, praise God, we were wrong. And so they asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Clearly, they didn't, they didn't quite get it. That when Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he was referring to the heavenly kingdom, open to both Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners, rich and poor, all who would repent of their sins. And trust in his death and resurrection. But listen to the grace in how Jesus responds to them. He didn't chastise them or reprimand them. But he gently corrected them. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples weren't entirely wrong. One day the kingdom will be fully and finally restored. But that day is even still yet to come. Evil will be done away with forever to face the wrath of God in hell and the kingdom of the true Israel All who trust in Christ and Christ alone will reign for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But that day, the Father has appointed, and it wasn't for the disciples or for us to know. Before that day is to come, the gospel has to go forth to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Not to Israel only, but to all nations, as the Father draws together all his sons and daughters through the preaching of the gospel, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus understood this. So that's why he told the disciples to go about preaching the gospel. The day is coming when there will be no more time to repent and trust in Christ. So if you have never done so, if you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, I urge you to do so today. You're hearing the gospel. You're hearing the good news that God loves his people so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to take away their sin and to be risen from the dead, guaranteeing that they will one day reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. The day is coming when there will be no more time to repent. But today there is time. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Dear friend, repent today and you will be with him forever. And those of us who have repented, might we be encouraged by this good news through the Holy Spirit's empowering to go forth and share it with others. Well, through this exchange of Jesus and, and with, through this exchange of Jesus with his disciples, we see several principles for evangelism for us. These principles bear great application for our specific context in post-Christian America, 2019. First, evangelism is not a political or worldly endeavor. When the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought that the kingdom of God was in a sense political and worldly. They thought that the kingdom would be restored on earth and that Israel would regain its place of political power. And in Jesus' response, he gently corrected them that this was not to be their concern. Evangelism is not a political or worldly endeavor. Now, this is a hard truth for us in our day and age. In our nation, everything is hyper-politicized to the point where Christians don't quite fit in. And we shouldn't. But all too often, it seems like the church gets trapped into this politicized mindset, which can really hinder gospel witness. Perhaps you remember around Christmas time in 2015, the controversy over the red cups 
at Starbucks. Starbucks, a company not at all claiming to be Christian, removed its vague holiday-themed pictures and phrases from its cups in favor of making them plain red. Well, this led to an outrage from some Christians accusing the company of anti-Christian messaging. Ed Stetzer, in his recent book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, commented on this story that outrage overwhelms truth. Biblical evangelism is not a political or worldly endeavor, and so we shouldn't expect secularly-minded people in post-Christian America to act like Christians. Rather than joining the problem and being outraged over such minute worldly things, we must stand as witnesses to the countercultural good news of Jesus. As Stetzer later said, it's the Christian's job to tell people about Jesus, not the barista who may be Jewish or secular or whatever. It's the Christian's job to tell people about Jesus and to stand on biblical truth no matter what. Our culture seeks to put everyone into some political box, but we Christians shouldn't quite fit in to any of those boxes. All across the political spectrum, we see things that align with Scripture and things that are contrary to Scripture. We must be careful not to compromise our biblical convictions to fit in to a political box. We must stand on Scripture as our final authority and not any party platform. This is not to say that it's wrong to align with a party, that it's wrong to go to the polls and make calculated decisions. In fact, that can be a duty of Christ followers in being good citizens. But politics should never rise to a, pra- to a place of primary importance in our lives. Our job is to tell people about Christ, not to win people to a political party. If our families, our coworkers, our friends on social media can more quickly identify our political party than our commitment to Christ, then we might share the disciples' mistaken perspective. To us, Jesus would respond just as he did to them that our primary concern is not to be when God will ultimately usher in his kingdom. Our primary concern is to stand counterculturally and to preach the good news of Jesus and win some witness. And this is not done through politics or worldly means. Evangelism is not a political or worldly endeavor. Second, we learn that the Holy Spirit's role, among other things, is to empower evangelism. Notice in Jesus' words how the promise of the Holy Spirit's power is directly connected to the disciples' task of being a witness for Christ. He says that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. There is an unbreakable connection between the Holy Spirit and evangelism. There is an unbreakable connection between the work of the Holy Spirit and our witness through evangelism. The word power literally refers to the ability of God to make things happen. The Holy Spirit's in power in our evangelism is a power that accomplishes the conviction of sin and the giving of faith in Christ to behold him as glorious and the only one who can save us from our sins. Not only does this mean that evangelism is impossible without the Holy Spirit's empowering, but it also means that our experience of the Holy Spirit's power comes in one sense through our evangelism. Our experience of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives comes through our obedience to being evangelists. It is a great lie of the enemy to deceive us that our own fears and doubts somehow disqualify us from evangelism. If you're like me, sometimes you struggle with your own faith. And you begin to buy into the lies in your head that can make you question How can I ever preach the good news to other people when I doubt it so much in my own heart at times? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? What if they studied more than me? What if they get angry with me? How can I possibly go and preach the gospel of Jesus when I at times doubt it for myself? 
Be encouraged by this scripture, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit empowers your evangelism. And it's when you go forth and tell others, tell others the good news that you will experience his power. When I was in college, I would often go with my best friend to Lancaster City or to the mall to share the good news of Jesus with other people. And I can remember one time specifically that I saw the Holy Spirit work. Maybe you've experienced moments like this in your own life in evangelism. My friend and I were sitting there at a table in the food court in Park City Mall, and there were some teens sitting there. And my friend was just talking with them, and he began to share his testimony. He talked about how he was delivered from a life of of sin and of just heinous acts before God. And as he shared this with them, he shared the gospel with them. And I could see the Holy Spirit really work to change these teens in their hearts. I saw one of them at one moment pass the phone across the table to his friend, and he had a little note written on it saying, we're not going to the party tonight. See, it's moments like that when we see the Holy Spirit that our faith is encouraged. The next night, um, the, the boys wanted to meet us at church, and so we went with them, and his mom, one of the boys' moms met us there, and she shared with us through tears how our interaction with them was an answer to her prayers for her son. There were a lot of times throughout that year of college that I really struggled with my faith. But it was moments like that that bolstered my faith. See, the word of God tells us here that the Holy Spirit empowers our evangelism. And so when we go forth, that's when we experience his joy. That's when we experience his empowering. And we might not even see the fruit right away. I was just talking with a friend yesterday on the phone, and he was telling me about one time, um, a few, uh, about a year or so ago, when he shared the gospel with someone, this woman came to him and was interested in reading scripture. She wasn't a believer, but he talked with her about how to read scripture. And as he did that, he shared with her the truth of the gospel. Didn't hear from her for about a year. And later he saw her. Recently, she came up to him, and she was sharing with him, Matt, I've seen it. I, I see it. I see how the Old Testament is in the New Testament. I see how Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins. And when I talked with my friend yesterday, his faith was so strengthened and encouraged by that interaction. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit is working through us, but we can rest assured from his word that he is. And it's when we share the gospel with others that we experience his empowering. When we isolate ourselves because of our fears and doubts, that's when we get crippled and driven even further into our fears, into our doubts. Brothers and sisters, do not buy into the lie that your fears and your doubts disqualify you from evangelism. We all have them. The disciples had them. It's when we're obedient that we experience the power of the Spirit. Do you you experience seasons of doubt? Do you long to see the Holy Spirit at work? Don't buy into the lie that you have to get yourself right before preaching the gospel to others. The gospel is true, independent of your circumstances. So start preaching the gospel to others and watch God work in and through your weakness to open your eyes to his power, growing your faith and confidence in ways that you could have never imagined. To be A disciple of Christ is to be a witness of the good news. And that's our third principle here. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a witness of the good news. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Being a witness in this case is not even a command. Rather, it's an unmistakable part of the disciple's identity. To be a disciple, to be one who follows Jesus is to be a witness to be one who preaches the gospel to others. Disciples are by very nature witnesses of the good news. And anyone who wants to follow, anyone who wants to follow Christ will be a witness of Christ to others. That's the point that's being made here in the scripture. Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And one of his commandments is to preach the good news of the gospel to others, to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, evangelism is a part of the Christ followers identity. To be a disciple is to be a witness. There's no getting around it. 
Most Christians in America would not disagree with this. Recently, a Christian research firm called the Barna Group conducted a survey of American practicing Christians. And practicing Christians were those who, who agreed strongly that their faith is important in their lives and that they have attended church at some point in the last month. And out of practicing Christians, the overwhelming majority, 95%, over 95%, agreed that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. In other words, almost everyone to whom their Christianity is important would agree that being a Christian means being a witness for Christ. But when it comes to knowing what a witness actually means, that's where the story is much different. In the book of Acts, to be a witness was to be an evangelist, to be someone who heralded the good news of Jesus in faith that the Lord would save sinners by faith in the gospel. But the fact of the matter is that the church in America has lost the biblical picture largely of what witness actually means. Jim Donahue mentioned this in his sermon last week, but in that same survey from the Barna group, 47%, that's almost half of practicing Christian millennials, 20 or 30 somethings agreed with the statement that it is wrong to share one's belief with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. So to almost half of all Christian millennials today, evangelism aimed at conversion is somehow wrong. How tragic this is. Clearly, when half of an entire generation of Christians thinks that witness is important, but evangelism is wrong, then we don't understand what being a witness means. As we learn from this passage in Acts 1, we must protect and treasure and practice the biblical definition of witness, which is evangelism. If it's true that to be a Christian is to be a witness, and to be a witness is to be an evangelist, then we must understand what a witness is and what a witness is not. Being a witness for Jesus is not just showing his love to people without ever doing the most loving act we could ever do and sharing the good news with them of the only way that they could be saved. Being a witness for Jesus is not promoting and defending sin in the name of tolerance. Being a witness for Jesus is not simply being a nice person, doing good deeds, trying to keep the peace without ever sharing the gospel. Being a witness for Jesus is not shirking back amidst cultural pressure and avoiding spiritual conversation because it's awkward. Being a witness for Jesus as biblically defined and evidenced all throughout Acts is to be a herald of the good news that saves sinners. There's a pattern all throughout the book of Acts where the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit take time to understand people's perspectives. And then starting with those perspectives, they preach the whole gospel narrative, ending with a call to repentance and faith. We too should take this same pattern in our lives as we preach the gospel to others. We see it in Acts 2 in Peter's sermon. He he refers to the scriptures that people would know, and then he proclaims the narrative of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and ends with urging them to repent and be baptized. As John preached to us a few weeks ago from Acts 17, Paul addressed the pagans' worldview, but then he told them how Christ fulfilled their longings. And at the end, some of them believed. So we see that to be a witness in the example of the believers in Acts means to be an evangelist. Brothers and sisters, in an age when many Christians are cracking under the cultural pressure, let us be men and women who stand firm on the truth without compromise and proclaim with joy and boldness the good news of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a witness of the good news. Fourth and finally from this exchange, we see that the gospel is expansive by nature. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The locations listed portray a progressive expansion of gospel witness. Jerusalem was where the apostles were located. It was where they were staying together. It was the people they were comfortable with. It was home to their Jewish people. 
Judea was a bit larger region, which included Jerusalem, and Samaria was just beyond Judea. And obviously the end of the earth was to all the nations. It would be like if we were to look at a satellite map of our area here, we would see uh, Shillington and then zoom out to Berks County, then to Pennsylvania, then to, then to the United States, and then to the entire globe. When Jesus told this plan to the disciples, they would have clearly understood the expansion of the gospel, starting with those closest to them and then extending to the entire world. The gospel is expansive by nature. In our lives, the gospel should be expansive through our evangelism. Perhaps to us, Jerusalem is like our homes, where we share the gospel with our roommates, our children, our families. Maybe for you, Judea is like your extended family, your school, your workplace. Perhaps Samaria is like your your community, your town, the other parents on your children's sports teams. The ends of the earth, that's our opportunities to give and to pray for the work in Croatia and in other nations, and to continually seek the Lord as to how he might have us be involved in this task of reaching all nations. And so I ask you and I ask myself, is the gospel expansive for us? Are we infusing the various spheres of our lives with the good news of Christ? If we're to follow the biblical picture of evangelism, then we should be active, actively seeking ways for the gospel to go forth into the different areas around us and to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, I am encouraged by how well you all do this. To go into 16th and Hawk Elementary week in and week out proclaiming the gospel to children. To put your job on the line because you won't stop preaching the good news at work. To feel a deep burden for the lost children at Wyoming Hills and seeking to start a good news club there. To take to the streets of the city week in and week out proclaiming the gospel to people. To pray and to give sacrificially to our brothers and sisters in Croatia. That's an expansive gospel witness. And I am so thankful to be among brothers and sisters who are characterized and defined by such an expansive gospel witness. Let us all be faithful to continually seek new ways to take the gospel both near and far. Well, just as the rest of these principles, expansive gospel witness is radically countercultural in our day and age. Think about it. We live in a, in a pluralistic society that says, it's okay, whatever you want to believe, but don't bring it out into public. Don't force your beliefs on others. Keep it to yourself. Well, a keep it to yourself gospel is no gospel at all. It's not the biblical gospel because the biblical gospel cannot stay to ourselves. If we kept the gospel to ourselves, it wouldn't be good news at all because people wouldn't hear the only way that they could be saved from the wrath of God. Aren't you so thankful that the person who preached the gospel to you didn't keep it to themselves? Don't you just marvel and delight in the wisdom of God that he would have led that seemingly random man or your faithful friend or your high school classmate, your mom or dad, to be countercultural, to be expansive with the gospel, and to share it with you. Let us be a people who long to be used of God in that way, with an expansive, countercultural, I can't keep it to myself gospel. The gospel is by very nature extensive, and if we are to be faithful in evangelism, then our lives should be characterized by expansive evangelism that seeks opportunities to take the gospel to the Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in our lives. So we can see clearly from this conversation between Jesus and his disciples in just two verses, multiple principles for us. Evangelism is not a political or worldly endeavor. The Holy Spirit's role, among others, is to empower evangelism. To be a disciple is to be a witness of the good news. And the gospel is expansive by nature. May the Lord empower us through these principles to bear much fruit in our evangelism. And might we be greatly encouraged as we look to the end of this passage in verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up. 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We see the disciples standing by now and watching as Jesus ascended into heaven, having just given them this charge to expansive evangelism. Two angels join them and we see in their statement, a great hope for the disciples and for us. When they tell them that this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, they greatly emphasize this Jesus. We can understand it as if they're saying this very Jesus, this same Jesus who died for you and who was risen from the dead. He's coming back. And in the meantime, He's given us a task, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to take this good news in to the entire world. And this, brothers and sisters, is where we come in to the story. We too long for Jesus' return as we face tragedy and hardship in our lives. But Jesus has not yet returned. And so the task of evangelism is not yet finished. It's for everyone and anyone who will follow him to take this good news to others. So rather than just throwing our hands up to heaven and asking when God will finally end all of the evil and suffering, we, just like the disciples, are called and equipped for this task of preaching the good news, for our joy and our assurance as we see the Spirit work through us. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to empower us for this task. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And because of that fact, he wants to use you to go about his mission of building the church as we await together the return of this very Jesus. This very Jesus who has existed in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit for eternity past. This very Jesus who left his throne in glory to dwell among men. This very Jesus who was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. This very Jesus who was nailed to a cross and died the most brutal death under the weight of his Father's wrath. This very Jesus who was raised from the dead to claim victory over death. This very Jesus who was taken up into heaven. This very Jesus who is right now at the Father's right hand interceding for his people and defending their faith. This very Jesus will come back. He is coming. In the meantime, may you and I follow the disciples' example. May you and I preach the good news empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let us day by day, seek his empowering, and then be faithful to proclaim the gospel counterculturally, expansively, and faithfully, confident that the Almighty God, through sinners like us, will continue to build his church until the day our Savior returns. Let's pray together. Almighty God, We are so grateful for the truth of the good news. We are so grateful that you would see fit to save wretched sinners like us. That you would send your son to die for us. That he would be risen from the dead. How deep the father's love for us. God, I pray that your spirit would empower us. I pray that your spirit would encourage us. I pray that your spirit would embolden us to go forth from here and to preach the good news faithfully, boldly, empowered by the spirit, understanding that it will take it will take courage. It will take countercultural witness. But God, you will work through us to encourage us, to assure us, and to build your church until the day our Lord returns. Let us be faithful, Lord, and let us one day in heaven look back many thousands of years from now at the work that you did from through us. Might we see many people in heaven who we preach the gospel to at one point, and might we all rejoice together at you, our saving God. Lord, we pray these things in the matchless name 
of this very Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Were you encouraged by that? I was very encouraged by that. There's, thank you, Brother Ethan. I wrote a lot of quotes down from you today. I thought you, you had some phenomenal statements there. The Lord used you greatly. But one of them that he, he said was this, and I think this is very important for all of us. Don't buy into the lie that you have to get yourself right before preaching the gospel to others. The gospel is true, independent of your circumstances. So start preaching the gospel to others and watch God work in and through your weakness and open your eyes to his power, growing your faith and confidence in ways you could have never imagined. We have the tendency to say, there's just no way I could go and proclaim this perfect, perfectly good news when I'm such a mess myself. Well, if the apostles thought that way, they would have never proclaimed the gospel. They were a mess. But they understood the one who cleaned up their messes, the janitor of janitors, if you will, were a mess. But that doesn't mean that we don't go out there and tell people about Jesus. Show up and watch the Holy Spirit do a work in and through you and be amazed. So this week, I want to encourage you to do something. I want you to go and proclaim the gospel to somebody that you run into, someone in your family, your children, somebody at the bank, somebody at the grocery store, your landlord, your landlady. I don't know who it might be, but tell them about the Lord. Tell them the whole counsel of God this week. That is my challenge to you as your pastor. Amen? And then let me know about it. Shoot me an email. Tell me about it. I'd love to hear about it. But in the meantime, you have my prayers. Because you know what? Go with the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't go wrong. Amen? He's going to use you. He is using you. And he'll continue to use you as you continue to say, Lord, here I am. Send me. All right? Go and have a great day in Jesus. Amen? And and when you get a chance, if Ethan is out there greeting people, encourage him in the gospel. Because, you know, it's hard preaching. And, you know, I, I just want to give a little statistic really quick before I tell you to go. Do you know that Mondays are the worst days for pastors? There's just statistics that say on Mondays, pastors are very tempted to quit ministry. That's their day off. That's the day when they're supposed to be enjoying their time with their families. But usually they're just bogged down with temptations because Sundays are so hard when they preach. So encourage him when he goes out, when you go out there and, and tell him that God really used him to minister grace to you today. Amen. Have an awesome week.